morning to each and every one. We're glad uh, you're all here. You're a great encouragement to us, and we're uh, thankful that you could be with us today. Uh, before we go to our time in the Word, please join me in asking God's blessing on our time. Father, now, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for this privilege to look into your Word at this time. Uh, we just pray that it will be a, uh, a great blessing. It will be a great challenge. It will be encouragement to us. Uh, it will be something that can uh, give us great assurance and hope and confidence and peace. Uh, Father, as has been mentioned earlier, I want to pray for those that couldn't be here with us today, those that are struggling with uh, illnesses of various kinds. We think of those that are away uh, traveling. Father, we just pray you keep them safe. Bring them back to us soon. We, uh, we just want to pray for this whole situation with uh, this terrible tragedy in Afghanistan. We uh, pray for those that are close to us that may be in harm's way. We particularly uh, pray for Chris uh, Caldwell at this time. Father, keep him safe. Father, we just want to remember others. Uh, we know that our uh, dealing with uh, great difficulty uh, health-wise. And we particularly want to remember Sandy today. Father, we just pray you'd be in great encouragement to her, lift her up along with Tom. Father, we just ask now your blessing and this, t- this our time in the Word. Uh, may your thoughts and your words be proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, we're continuing on our journey in the book of First John. And we find ourselves at First John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, and if you can uh, join me as I read that, uh, it should be a copy in your bulletin, uh, but please take a Bible and follow along if you would. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. John writes this, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because God first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Well, before we get uh, to our text this morning, I want to backtrack just real briefly uh, to where Woody left off last week in verse 12. And John wrote this. He says, No one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. We are unable to see God at this time. We cannot see him. But if we love each other, we know that God abides in us, and therefore, what? Others can see God through us. They should catch, they should catch a glimpse of who God is through us in our life, and our testimony in that way. 
And it is a great privilege to be able to do that, a great responsibility as well. We, uh, we know what our job description is as being believers. It's to glorify God. I like to put it another way. I say it's our job to make God, and particularly Jesus, look good. That's our job. So we have to recognize that's a tremendous responsibility that we have because others will see Jesus through us. And that may be the only vision that they get. And it's our responsibility to be lovely. If God abides in us, that means that he is in us and we are in him, as we'll see. We become his children. We are part of his family. And we ought to bear a family resemblance. We ought to bear a family resemblance. People should see God in us in, a, in an imperfect way, but nonetheless see us as well. Now, the key term that we're going to look at today is this business of abiding. And we've talked before, about that before. What does that mean to abide? It means to dwell with or live with. And it's interesting as we trace uh, in the Bible the events where the Bible talks about how God dwells or abides or lives with us. In Genesis, the Bible tells us that God walked with man. Talk about that. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the Bible tells us that God commanded the Israelites to construct a temple so that he might live among them. Now, he occupied his very special presence. This is something we we need to talk just briefly about. If we study the attributes of God, we say that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But he has chosen to have a special presence among us. In Exodus chapter 25 where the Israelites were commanded to construct a tabernacle, his special presence would be in what? The Holy of Holies. Now, if you were John Q. Public, an Israelite, you would not have access to that Holy of Holies. Only one person would have access, and that was only one time a year, and that was the high priest, and that was on the Day of Atonement, and he could enter into that. So God lived among the Israelite people. Okay, As we go forward in the Bible, we see as Jesus entered in the world, he promised us another thing. He says that God would live in us. So from going to walking with us to living among us, now God would live in us. He would abide in us. This is a a hard concept to understand. I I don't know that I can explain it because I don't know that I can really understand that, how that can be, how he can dwell in us in that very special way. That's a a tough concept, but we know it is true. Our Lord himself said in John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14, verse 20, he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul said, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? There are a number of other scriptures that refer to this concept of us living in God, God living in us. And it's something I can't really explain, but the net effect is that 
somehow, some way, we are united in a special way. We are in Jesus. Jesus is in us. And because all of us, hopefully all of us here, are believers, right? So we're all in this in this dynamic living organism that we know as the body of Christ. We abide one with another. So we talk about this term of abiding. Really what it means is that we are saved. And a key question would be is how in the world can we know that we are saved? John gave us a a clue in that. He says if we love one another, God abides in us. How else can we know If God abides in us, how can we know that we are saved? That's an important question, a real basic one. We've got to, we have to be clear on this. So John is going to tell us. John is going to give us some indications of how we can be convinced that we are saved, that God abides in us and we in him. Verse 13, John writes this, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So if we abide in God and God abides in us, his spirit dwells in us. We have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's all well and good, but how can we know that? Is this some strange feeling that we get in our stomach, you know, after we've had a plate of ribs or something? How how do we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Is there any way we can know? Are there any clues that we can have as to determine whether the Holy Spirit is really dwelling in us? Thankfully, there is. Thank you for asking. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the book of Galatians. And in chapter 5, verse 22, he talks about it as being the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I make the assertion that the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in any one of us and not make a difference. I say that is impossible. There are those that say you can be saved and there can be no change in your life. You can just do as you did before. There will be no difference. I view that view as being heretical. I view that there is no way that the Holy Spirit can dwell inside you and not change you, not make a difference. And Paul talks about this as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he lists these out. He enumerates these for us. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the question is, do we have some evidence of those in our lives? Would the impartial observer who knows us say, yeah, he's a pretty patient kind of guy. He's a kind guy. Loving person. He has joy. She. Some of those things. Are those clues evident in your life? The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, after he has talked about a whole litany of similar qualities that the Apostle Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5, says this. He says, For if these qualities, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they're yours and increasing. So What he's saying is that all these things we're talking about, love, joy, peace, patience, all those sort of things, we know that we are not going to be the model for that. When you open the the dictionary and it says kindness, there will not be a picture of Bill Kristof there. Because I'm, I'm not 
fully kind. I hope I'm somewhat kind. I hope that you would say that about me if you know me at all. You would say, yeah, he's kind of a kind guy, but he's not perfectly that way because various flaws in my character will come out and make themselves known. But, but these things should be ours to a degree. And the Apostle Peter says, if these, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you, what, neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Salvation. You're saved. If these things are in you, this is a good indication that you and I can have that we are saved, that God abides in us and we abide in God. Also, he has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit accomplishes another very important task, and that is he has sealed us. What's that mean? What's that mean? He has sealed us. What is a seal in this case? We're not talking about a, a, a sea creature. We're talking about uh, the stamp of approval or something that makes a, a, a document a legal and binding instrument. You know, you go, if you've bought a car or you've bought property or something like that, and you go before a notary, notary public. I always want to say notary republic, but it's notary public. And they'll ask you to show evidence of who you are. You have to show identification and so on and so forth. And here's this document and you sign it, and now this is legal. He puts the stamp of approval on it, or he has that special pliers kind of thing that embosses it in a, in a special way, and that's it's sealed. It's made it official. In, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, Apostle Paul talks about this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Apostle Paul writes this, he says, In him, meaning in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Interesting side note, it's not enough to listen to it. You guys, you know, you can be here, uh, you know, week in and week out and listen to the gospel message. What's the, what's the key there? Also believed also believed. Not enough to listen, not enough to hear it. He says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's kind of a guarantee. It makes it legal. It's something that's dependable. It's verifiable. Okay? And then in verse 14, he goes on and says this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Holy Spirit, now he's talking about, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. It's given as a pledge. Here is, here, here is something that as a guarantee, it's a guarantee. Now, if you have the King's, King James Version, your Bible, instead of uh, given as a pledge of your inheritance, it is given, it says it this way, it's given as an earnest of your inheritance. Now, when you bought, you were negotiating to buy your house, another piece of property, and the seller and you are determining, you know, what the final price is going to be and so on and so forth, and you get all that worked out and say, you know, this, this house, you know, you and the seller 
have determined, okay, it's going to be $100,000. Now, the seller is going to tell you probably, you know, before, before we're going to put this thing in escrow and we go through all this trouble and, and so on, you know, I want to make sure you're a legitimate buyer. I want to make sure that you can follow through on this agreement. So what does the seller demand? He demands some earnest money. And so, say for example, this $100,000 property says, all right, I'm going to demand $5,000 of earnest money from you. Now, most of the time, that money is not refundable. If you can't follow through on this transaction, you, know, you can't get the loan or you, whatever it may be, you change your mind, guess what? You've lost your $5,000. It's earnest money. And this is the kind of the same sort of thing. He is proving, this is a pledge. He's proving that he is serious. This is an irrevocable promise that we have. We have been sealed. So that if you know, if you have been saved, if God abides in you and you in God, you have the confidence that it's forever. There's no... It's sealed. It's like a hermetically sealing a device. It's not going to change. It's not going to change. He's given us that guarantee. That's precious. So, we can know, we can have confidence that we are saved if, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and we see how that can be true. And once we know that to be true, we can have confidence it will remain true. Then John goes on and says this. In verse 14, I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to skip over briefly, on, uh, brief, briefly over verse 15 and go to the first part of verse 16. John says this. He says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Then in verse 16, he says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. So John is saying this. He says, we, meaning he and his contemporaries, have seen it. He says, we have seen it and we testify. We, we solemnly, we're taking more or less like taking an oath. This is what we've seen, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's quite a remarkable statement. He says, we've seen it and we testify. The Father sent Jesus into the world to be the Savior. Now, Savior from what? What does that mean? What, is, what does that, what does that uh, Savior? What kind of stuff are you talking about here? You've been rescued. God sent the Son to rescue the world, to redeem the world. Those who would believe in Him. Those who would believe in Him. Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, to redeem you, the one who would rescue you. And we have come to know, verse 16, come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. What greater example of God's love could he have given? What is most important to you? If you will give up what's most important to you, that's pretty much all you can do to show somebody how much you care, right? That's all I have. I'm going to give you the best I have. That's something that's the most important to me. God gave what was most important to him, to you, to rescue you, to redeem you, to save you, to be the Savior of the world. And so John is, John is testifying to this fact. He's telling everybody that will listen. 
that this is true and this is the fact. Now he goes on, now back to verse 15, and he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. See, it was true for John. He says, I'm testifying, I'm telling you that Jesus is the Savior. God sent him to be the Savior. And he demonstrated his love in the, in the greatest way that he knew how to be your Redeemer and to be your Savior. I'm testifying, and you know what? You can too. You can too. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Do those people who know you, do they think you are a believer? It's a good question. You know, I, I, hope, I hope most people or all the people that know me have known me beyond just a casual acquaintance would know that I'm a believer. Maybe some don't. I don't know. What about you? Does everybody that knows you, the people that you work with, People in your circle of acquaintances, do they know you're a believer? Question. Have you testified? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you confessed that to them? What's that word confess mean? It means to agree with. It's to, to personally acknowledge. It cannot be mere words coming out of your mouth or my mouth. It cannot be that. God will not be mocked. He knows what's in your heart. You know, there was what you would say would be casual believism, if you will, that's in our world. Well, well, so-and-so said, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. You know, you can say whatever you want. What is true in your heart is what counts. Apostle James said this in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Of what use is it, brethren, if a man says he has faith and has no works, can that faith save him? That is a rhetorical question. Of course, you answer no. There will always be evidence in your life that you are saved. There should be. Confessing is with, your, with words. The important thing is what you believe in your heart. John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So here is another evidence. Are you letting people know that you're a Christian? Or is that something you kind of keep under wraps? I don't want too many people to find out about that. Or I might be embarrassed about the people who do find out about that. What is true for you? John goes on. He said, says this, God is love. Verse 16, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Because God is love, we can love as well. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, he says, if we love God, we will love one another. If we love one another, we will grow in our love for God. It's kind of like a vicious cycle, in a good way. Each one increases the other. So how else can we know that God abides in us and we in God? John tells us more. Verse 17, he says this. He says, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. It says we can have confidence in the day of judgment. He says by this love is perfected. What does that mean? What does that word perfected mean? Does it mean without flaw? I don't think that's what he's meaning here. In fact, I know it's not what he's meaning. But it's basically, I like to use the defini- definition of, this, of that this way. It says, it has become what it should be. Or it reaches or achieves its objective. So, love has reached its objective with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This word confidence mean it means boldness. Some of your versions of your Bible will say boldness. Now this is not boastful or it's not some arrogant statement. It's not brashness. John used the same word for confidence when he talked about how we can know that God hears and answers our prayers. How many here do not believe that God hears and answers our prayers? If you've been here the last couple of years, you have seen remarkable, remarkable answers to prayer. And that same confidence is what John is talking about here, that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. His love has been perfected in us. And, and how is his love perfected? His love is perfected when we are redeemed and we are rescued. God demonstrated his love in that way, that he sacrificed his life so that we might be rescued. That's how his love was perfected. And we can have boldness as we go before God as we transition from this life into the next. By this we know we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, is it possible that you and I may be apprehensive as we, you know, approach that time where we will be leaving this life and entering the next? Is that possible? Can we have a little unnerving sensation in us? Can we be apprehensive about that? I think so. You know, I know I, for one, am apprehensive about that time when I will stand before God and I will give an account for my life. That is going to be a sobering time for me, and I imagine for you as well. Because truth be told, when I give an account, I'm going to have to be honest and say, you know, I really have not used my time or my talents to their best use. I've not done that. I will stand before him and I will give an account, but I will not be judged. I should have no fear of judging we may be apprehensive because there's, as the song would say that, that many artists have sung, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You know, that is a, it's a scary thing. We, we're entering uncharted waters, so to speak. We haven't done that before. And even things that we know are pleasant and good, if we've not experienced them before, they're kind of scary. You know, last year, our daughter Lindsay went off to college, and this year Emily is going off to college. And Lindsay knew that going off to college is a great school and so on and so forth, but I think I'd be right to say that there's a little little, uh, apprehension. 
a little bit scared about going off to school like that, even though even though she knew here's a great great college. Emily will say the same things right now. She's she's apprehensive about this. You know, you've not gone down that path before. We can be a little bit uncertain about all these things, and it can be a little bit scary. But that type of apprehension or that little unsettled feeling that we might have is not what John is talking about here. He is talking about fear of judgment. That is standing before God when God makes a determination whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. We should have no fear of that. That should be characteristic. If you abide in God and He abides in you, this is something you should not have. You should have no fear of standing before God at that time where he will make that determination whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, in the Gospel of John, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, Much more then. Having now been justified by His, meaning Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Wrath doesn't apply to us. Paul goes on, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And finally, take a look later on in Romans chapter 8 verses 35 and then 37 to 39, and he asks that rhetorical question, what can separate us from God's love? He goes, basically nothing. Basically nothing. We don't have to fear judgment. We will not experience that. We will give an account. Yes. And that's, that's a little scary. That's a little scary. But in the end, what will the verdict be? What will the verdict be? Here's how we know. End of verse 17. Here's how we know this, how, what this verdict will be. He says this. Okay, I'll read all of verse 17. He says, By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he, meaning Christ, is, so also are we in this world. Now, if Jesus stood before God... Is Jesus going to be convicted of anything? Any wrongdoing of any kind? No. Was Jesus perfect? Yes. Does he stand before God as being perfect? Yes. Did he thoroughly and completely obey everything? Yes. Is Jesus guilty in any way? No. As he is, so are we also in this world, right here, right now. We stand before God innocent, not because we haven't done things that would deserve judgment, but we abide in him, and he abides in us. So when God looks at us, what does he see? He doesn't see my guilt. He doesn't see that. He sees Christ's innocence. We have no need to fear. No need to fear. However, however, if God's love has not been perfected in you, in other words, 
His objective in His love is to see you redeemed. That's what it means for His love to be perfected. If that is not true of you today, you have every reason to fear. John says this because he says in verse 18, he says because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. If you have not been perfected in God's love, you have every reason to be terrified about passing from this life into the next. You have no confidence. You have no confidence at all because as he is, you are not also in this world. You are not also in this world. So you should be afraid. You should be fearful. You should be terrified at this point. It's um, interesting. I finished reading a book here a couple months ago, actually, is now being read on KNIS, on Reader's Choice. It's a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany, both before the war and then during the war. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred for his faith uh, literally just days before World War II ended. Had it gone just a few more days, he would have not been killed. But he was. He was martyred for his faith. And in this book, the author talks not only about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. He talked a lot about that. But he talked also about a lot of the characteristics of Nazi Germany. And it was interesting for me to see that in several cases, at least, uh, the upper echelon of Nazi leadership had a very clear understanding of what the Christian faith really involved. Substitutionary atonement, the fact that Christ would die for your sins. They understood it. Now, make no mistake, they thoroughly rejected that. You know, the concept of grace and mercy, which is at the heart of the gospel message where Jesus dies on our behalf, you know, and so we can receive mercy, and that's by his grace, not anything that we've done. It's a, it's a, it's a simple gift from his love. Those concepts of grace and mercy, mercy were anathema to Nazi ideology. They didn't view that as virtuous. They viewed it as a flaw, as a weakness, and that was something to be avoided. Mercy and grace were, had nothing to do with it. Well, in, the, in this book, there is a quote, uh, one that really sent chills down my spine, a quote from Heinrich Himmler. And many of you may know who Heinrich Himmler was. He was one of the chief architects of the most <laughs> evil, evil periods of time in human history where the murder of millions of innocent, hapless Jewish people, Russian people, and many, many others that didn't fall into that category. He was one of the master architects of that, what Hitler referred to as the final solution. Heinrich Himmler said this, said, as an Aryan, I must have the courage to take responsibility for my sin alone. That should send chills down your spine. As an Aryan, I must have the courage to take responsibility for my sin alone. 
See, God's love had not been perfected in Heinrich Himmler's heart. He was not redeemed. He was not redeemed. And so when Heinrich Himmler stood before God in judgment, you know what? He got his wish. He, had, he was going to take responsibility for his sin alone. As far as the courage part about it, I don't think so. Heinrich Himmler might have boasted in that while he was on earth, when he stood before God, I'll guarantee you, he didn't stand in courage. His knees were like jello, so to speak. And he bowed before the God of the universe. And he did, so far as we know, he took responsibility for his sin alone. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm not evil like Heinrich Himmler, for crying out loud. Look, at the, he's the worst possible representation of a human being just about that you can come up with. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But I will ask you this question then. Who will take responsibility for the lies that you've told in your life? Who will take responsibility for the times that you've stolen, even small amounts? Who will take responsibility for the times when you have lusted after someone that was not your spouse? Who will take responsibility for the times that you have blasphemed God with your mouth? Who will take responsibility for that? If love has not been perfected in you, if you are not saved, if God does not abide in you and you do not abide in God, you will have it just like Heinrich Himmler. You will take responsibility for your sin alone. Your sin alone. Our Bible says that any sin will separate us from God. Any sin. He doesn't grade on a curve. That's not to say that Heinrich's Himmler punishment won't be worse than those that have only done minor acts of evil. But make no mistake about it, just as Heinrich Himmler is separated from God for eternity, if love has not been perfected in, you, in your heart, you will be separated from God for an eternity as well. You will be separated from love for an eternity. You will be separated from joy for an eternity. You will be separated from goodness for an eternity. You will be separated from peace for an eternity. You will be separated from light for an eternity. Because where you're going is dark, completely dark. You will take responsibility for your sin alone. But it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. God right here, right now, is offering you mercy. He is offering mercy to you. And it's up to you to call upon him for that. It will cost you nothing except one thing. You will have to swallow your pride. You will have to understand that you need mercy. You have to give up the concept that, oh, I'm not as bad as that other guy. You've got to give that up. All those things that I mentioned, lying, theft, blasphemy, lust, all those things I have done, all those things you have done, God offers you mercy. 
He offers you the opportunity for his love to be perfected in which you can be in him, he can be in you, and when you stand before God at the judgment, he doesn't see that. He sees Jesus in his perfection. And he says, come on in. Come on in. It's okay. He's offering you mercy. You do not have to experience judgment. John goes on this. He says, we love because he first loved us. Verse 19. The greatest example of that I find in Romans chapter 5. And Paul is going on and he says, you know, he's talking about someone dying for someone else. And he, and, and he says, basically, well, you know, for a good man, somebody would possibly die. I, you might possibly trade your life, you know, for your child or your spouse or, or someone that your best friend. You might do that. You might trade your life for theirs. But would you do it for a scoundrel? Would you do it for Philip Garrido? I'd be there pulling the switch is what I'd be doing. And then Paul says, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. When I was hurling blasphemies, when I was stealing, when I was lying, all those things, at that point, when I was in open rebellion, when I was saying, here's what sin is, saying, I don't care what God wants at all. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, if I want to do it, how I want to do it. When I was saying all those things, and when you were too, at that point, Jesus died on the cross for you. We love because he first loved us. We can love. And we should love because, not just because he commanded us to, but because we want to. (laughs) We want to do it from here. We want to do it out of appreciation, what he's done for us. We want to do it out of acknowledgement of the excellence of his character. He loved, we love because he first loved us. John finishes this up. We're going to close. Verse 20 and 21. If he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, if you've been in church over the last couple months when we've been in this book of John, this sounds like a kind of almost like a broken record. You've heard this before. You've heard it before. Something important needs to be repeated, right? Uh, I was visiting with a friend of mine some time ago, and he was relating a conversation he had with another pastor by the name of Alex Montoya. And some of you might know who he is. He's a pastor in Southern California, uh, quite a remarkable man. And my friend was visiting with Alex Montoya, and somewhere in the course of the conversation, Alex Montoya shared with him that in a, a recent week that events had conspired against him. All sorts of things had kind of got dumped on him. Has that ever happened, Woody? Yeah, and it's no better. You can't get anything done because every time you answer the phone, here's another crisis you've got to deal with. You know, just things out of the blue, unexpected, so on and so forth. Saturday rolls around, and he hasn't had time to get started on his sermon. And he, he's saying, you know, I can't do anything. I, I, you know, I can't do justice to what 
you know, what I should say. He says, I'll just, I'll just take a sermon that I preached out of the file, and I'll, I'll preach that tomorrow. So he did. He dusted it off, and he, you know, uh, kind of went over things, you know, just kind of polished it up a little bit and preached that sermon the next day. Well, after the service was over, one of the members of the conversation, con- conversation, con- <laughs> that too, congregation, came up to him and, and kind of, you know, he, he's like, says, what do you mean preaching this sermon to us? I've heard that one before. What do you mean preaching that sermon again? And Alex Montoya, who preaches, preaches a great sermon, but also thinks on his feet much quicker and faster than I do, responded this way. He says, well, those things I told you to do in that sermon, are you doing them? And the guy says, well, 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 well no. And Alex Montoya says, well, then you needed to hear it again. <laughs> so John knows we need to hear this again. We need to hear this again. We need to love our brothers and our sisters. We need to love one another here. It's the window through by which people will see Jesus. It's important. God wants us to do it. It should be important to us as well. You know, we should be willing. The one who chooses to, to love his brother should be willing to forgive him. Matthew 18, chapter, chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Should be willing to bear another's burdens. Galatians chapter 2, should be willing to sacrifice to meet the needs of others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. We should love one another. Finally, as we close and go to communion, you know, it's appropriate to say, we talked about judgment and the fear of hell. You know, it's real. It's no joke. It's not mere rhetoric. It's true. And what we're going to be commemorating here in a minute is the series of events that made it possible that you do not have to experience judgment. And it's a series of events that we commemorate that I don't have to experience judgment. If God abides in you and you in God, hey, the worst day that's going to be ahead of you will be that time when you have to give an account. But in the end... He says, it's all okay. It's all taken care of. Don't worry about it. My son took care of it for you. It's all right. Come in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for that fact. Thank you that we do not have to experience judgment, that you offer us mercy. Father, that is the greatest uh, uh, gift you could ever give, and we're thankful for that. Uh, We just pray now as we go to communion that uh, we would um, really consider that depths of our heart. We just thank you in your name, in the name of your son. Amen.